0: If you would, turn in your Bibles to Matthew, Chapter 6. So, hi to the Frankenfields. Welcome home. uh, It is good to have uh, good friends here. We are in our series on biblical priorities, and uh, today we are in Matthew 6. I'm going to read verses 25 through 34, but our key verse is verse 33. So please uh, listen carefully, as this is the Word of God. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You've brought us to this amazing gospel. to Learn more about your son, Jesus. We ask uh, this morning that you would give us the grace to understand your hard teaching here. And it's hard not simply because Jesus has the ability to say so much in so few words. But it's hard because our wills aren't easily bent to obedience. We want to listen to our own hearts instead of yours. We love to worry. We live in our anxieties. And Jesus doesn't want either in our lives. So help us to consider what it means to follow you and not ourselves. And as always, give us the desire to learn from you this morning and help us to consider what it means To seek first the kingdom of God and so we pray speak through the words of Matthew this morning and by the power of the Holy Spirit help us see Jesus for in his name we pray amen and amen obviously I wasn't worried about what to wear today it's summer so but I'm going to talk about winter each winter Certain parts of America get hammered by monster snowstorms. It's a good subject for mid-July. And when it's our turn, we all have stories about how we survived the winter of whatever year it was. We even come up with cool names for these storms, like Snowpocalypse or Snowmageddon. And the people who live in Buffalo, New York, or the Upper Peninsula of Michigan just roll their eyes at us. <laughs> well, no one has the snow story quite like the Norwegian explorer named Borj Ausland. From November 15, 1996 to January 17, 1997, he saw nothing but white. See, at that time, he became the first person to ever cross the continent of Antarctica alone and unaided. It took him 64 days to cover 1,675 frozen miles. That sounds like a nightmare to me. He harnessed Antarctica's fierce winds by strapping himself to this parachute-like sail And when the winds were in his favor, he could ski as much as 140 miles a day. All the while, he's towing a sled carrying 400 pounds of supplies, enduring monotony, a complete whiteout all the time, 24 7, and temperatures that drop to 40 degrees below zero. And after his incredible journey, Auslin talked about the huge mental challenge of facing these seemingly endless fields of snow. And here's how he did it, in his own words. It's so big and so far, you have to keep concentrating on the near future and make every day a victory. Think about that. Jesus orders in our passage today are quite clear. And they're repeated three times, do not be anxious. What makes us anxious? I mean, things can be, in the words of that Arctic explorer, so big and so far. In fact, right now, you may be facing a situation like that, maybe several of them. They look as big and as far as that vast expanse of Antarctica must have looked de Ausland. You're anxious about an overwhelming challenge in your finances or your family, maybe your health, your responsibilities, or a relationship. But your anxiety is probably not contributing toward anything towards managing this situation. If anything, anxiety is paralyzing you, perhaps distorting your judgment may be robbing you of the energy you need for this challenge. Listen to the teaching of Jesus. (coughs) Excuse me. Essentially what he's saying is don't keep dragging your tomorrows into your today. Anxiety is often is trying to live your tomorrow before you get there. And Jesus is saying just do today. or In the words of that noted philosopher, Crash Davis, we're gonna take them one day at a time. In fact, that's exactly how Borge Auslin handled this seemingly endless winter of his Antarctic journey. He said you have to keep concentrating on the near future. He also said make every day a victory. That's how you deal with a child who's taking everything you've got as a parent. That's how you beat a sin that has conquered you for so long. It's how you dig your way out of a mountain of debt. It's how you manage the unmanageable, make every day a victory. And on those days that don't turn out to be victories, put that day behind you and start fresh the next day. Lamentations 3 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now, for those of you that get the weekly email, as I wrote the other day, we're a month into this summer series on biblical priorities called First Things First. So far, we've looked at first inquire, first recognize, first listen, and first understand. And today we've come to what may be the most well-known first command of them all. First seek, which we find in Matthew 6.33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Some of you are hearing that lyric in your head right now, because that's how you know that verse. Jesus is addressing this issue of anxiety of being anxious in everyday life. And he gives us his command to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But to be honest, that sounds easier said than done. After all, we live in a world filled with anxiety today. Our society, our culture is constantly marketing anxiety. Our individual lives are filled with anxiety. Everyone here is anxious about something. Everyone here has to face anxiety in one form or another. And there's many different forms. In one way or another. It's common to life. And yet we come to Jesus' command not to be anxious three times. He says, do not be anxious. Think about that. How does anybody have the audacity to command us not to be anxious? I mean, who wants to be anxious? Nobody gets up in the morning and says, I'm going to be really anxious today. I can't wait. It's not usually a voluntary thing. So why would Jesus command this? Well, if we look carefully, and that's why we read the whole context, he's not commanding us in a military kind of way. Jesus isn't coming up to us and saying, buck up, why are you being anxious? Cut it out, stop it, whistle a happy tune. He's not saying that. I might say that. I'm quick to say, suck it up, be tough, deal with it. Get over it. Life is tough and then you die. For years, our family motto was, get up, you're fine. And that's because I'm a jerk, sometimes. But Jesus isn't ever. Instead, if you look carefully, you see that Jesus gets underneath the surface and explains the why of this command. There's a sense in which he does spiritual heart surgery. He says anxiety is killing you, but if you sit sit still and let me do spiritual heart surgery on you, if you listen to my instructions, I can get it out. I can remove it. So there's an obedience issue here, but at the same time, there's a sense in which Jesus is saying, I'm going to show you how to get underneath the surface, how you can let me get underneath the surface, and how you and I can deal with anxiety. Three times Jesus says, do not be anxious. So first we have to ask, what is anxiety? I've already said it's common to all of us, and there's all different types and different levels of anxiety. It's actually much easier to describe than it is to define. Not long ago, Time Magazine said it's the prevailing quality of our modern culture. If you go back through the history of Time Magazine, they have over 5,000 articles dealing with anxiety and stress, including multiple cover stories. And I think the reason for that level of sort of constant focus is that anxiety is more than a psychological thing. It has psychological and physical components as well as spiritual and philosophical aspects to it. Psychologically, anxiety, of course, can be focused on a specific danger. But it can also be a a debilitating general condition that's not really focused on any particular cause. The best way to describe it, it's like, I don't know if this is the best way, but that's what I wrote. It's like having the constant baseline from Jaws running through your life. but, um, but um, And you're kinda looking around for the fin. You're sure something, somewhere is going wrong. And it can be a frightening, thing. It can not only characterize us psychologically, but even more so, anxiety as a physical aspect. Physically, anxiety is called stress. We know this by personal experience. We know that our bodies have an autonomic nervous system. So whenever there's a danger, our bodies suddenly get triggered, our system gets triggered by the anxiety, by the danger and our bodies begin to pump adrenaline, and all kinds of other things get us ready for what we call fight or flight. We get ready for uh, drastic, dramatic action. And so when danger appears, our body has a way of getting us ready to do something, to take action. But if you find you're constantly living under stress, that every day, day in and day out, you're constantly living with perceived dangers, Financial dangers, professional dangers, relational dangers. find that your body is always in that condition. Your body's not supposed to be like that. The system's not supposed to be going off all the time. And eventually you burn out. Ulcers, hypertension, or high blood pressure, even heart attacks can be the result. I now know something about heart attacks. I actually know way more than I want to know about heart attacks. There is an actual physical cost to that kind of stress. Anxiety even has a philosophical aspect. Philosophers talk about angst, but the German philosophers, I love this, they talk about Geworfenheit. this is a great word, I could say that a lot. Roughly, it means thrown It's a feeling of being thrown into the world, unprepared, unready, with no rhyme or reason to things. And you can read stories in the news every day about senseless tragedies, mass shootings, social unrest, anger and rage over virtually every issue, whether it's deserved or not. And a lot of people personalize those. They read a story about social unrest and they feel social unrest, even if it's far away and has nothing to do with them. That's becoming more and more common because our culture is constantly reading stories like that to the point where we're looking for them. And after all, they are on social media every single day. And you begin to feel that anxiety that's much more philosophical than psychological. The sense that there's no rhyme or reason to things. And it can become a prevailing emotion. Anxiety can and does infect every part of our lives. Mind, will, and emotion. But what is it? When Jesus says, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. He says that at the end of our passage. He's summing up everything else he has said before. And he's basically telling us anxiety is concerned about the potential more than the actual. Anxiety is concerned about that which we can't control. The essence of anxiety is the desire to control that which we can't control. It's often why we get anxious. Not the only reason, but it is one of the primary reasons. We feel the need for control in an area where there's no possibility for control. We want certainty where there's uncertainty. We want to know the outcomes in advance. If I'm going to make this decision or do this thing, how is it going to turn out? Well, we almost never know how it's going to turn out in advance. And that causes anxiety. The dictionary says that anxiety is a state of uneasiness and distress about future uncertainties the desire to control the uncontrollable. But defining it merely leads us to the next question, which is, if that's what it is, where does it come from? The Bible, as usual, gives us far and away the most coherent answer. Jesus is saying that often, not exclusively, but often the source of anxiety is the desire to exercise power. The fact is we want the power that God has. And anxiety comes from that Look at what he says, verse 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? But that's the point we want to add to our life. We want the kind of power that God has. And what he's saying is essentially, listen, who's been keeping your life going all these years anyway? Why are you so worried about it now? I mean, put it this way, when the doctor comes in with bad news, when the boss comes in with bad news, and suddenly we get anxious because we feel like things are out of control. But it's the threat, the danger, that reveals the illusion that we've been living under all these years. And the illusion is that we felt we were in control. We're getting anxious because we think things are getting out of control. But that's not actually true. The threat is revealing your true condition. You've always been out of control. You've always been vulnerable. You've never been the one keeping your life going. You see, danger and threat, which triggers anxiety, is essentially showing us not a new condition, but at the deepest level, it's showing us what we knew all along. We've never been in charge. We're not in control. Jesus says we're anxious because we disbelieve and we dislike the fact that we're dependent on the supporting power of God. We don't like it, we're afraid of it, and that's what anxiety is. Biblically, though, there is a wonderful truth underneath all of this. Pascal, a Christian philosopher, has an interesting statement. The great thing about Christianity is even when it's telling you what's wrong with you, it tells you in such a positive way because it shows you where it's from. Pascal said it like this, he said, the greatness of man is so evident that it's even proved by his wretchedness. For who is unhappy at not being a king except the deposed king? You understand what he's saying? The Bible says the reason we're anxious is because we want to be in control. But the reason we want to be in control is because we were made originally to be kings and queens on earth. The Bible tells us that we were built to be stewards. Now, a steward is basically the number one slave in a great mansion. He's the slave with authority. The steward is a slave toward the master, but toward everyone else, he was a king. And when a steward is a slave toward his master, dependent, loving, obedient, he grows in his authority, and that's the kind of king we were built to be. However, the Bible tells us in the book of Genesis that we didn't like being in charge of everything except God we wanted to be in charge of everything we wanted to be our own masters and trying to become more than human we became less today how we respond to this need for control which comes from the fact that we were built to be kings and queens the fact that we were built for glory well we respond now the way we responded then we're no different from adam and eve we try to get more power more control more certainty And the more we try, the less we get, and the less we feel. We're insecure because we want power. The more we want power, the more we seek control, the more we demand certainty, the more we resent the fact that God's the one who's in control and who has the power and who is certain. And so the more insecure we get. Anxiety comes from the desire for power. That's why the great reformer, Martin Luther, looked at his best friend, Philippe Melanchthon. And and Philippe was known historically for being a very anxious person. And instead of Luther saying, Philippe, come on, suck it up, he did spiritual heart surgery. He went underneath and he said to Philippe, let Philippe cease to rule the world. You know why you're anxious, Philippe? You want to be in charge. You're trying to be in charge. Let Philippe cease to rule the world. We feel we have to assert ourselves. Anxiety comes when we try. Anxiety, again, not completely. There's, like I said, many different types and many different levels. But one of the main ones is the need for con- to control the uncontrollable. And the desire for that comes from our basic essential nature as kings and queens, which we try to express by being masters of our own lives, even when we're not. So that leads us to the third question this morning. What do we do about it? Because you're saying, Dave, this is all very interesting. But in fact, it's making me even more anxious. Thank you very much. So what do I do now? Well, again, Jesus never tells us to just buck up, be tough. He tells us what to do. In this passage, he says, if you're full of anxiety, psychological, physical, philosophical, whatever, there are two things you're doing wrong. And therefore, if you want to lessen the anxiety in your life, there are two things you have to do right. Now, I'm not persuaded you can get rid of it 100% this side of heaven. Great thing is the other side of heaven. Jerry German has no anxiety this morning. And he says, the two things you're doing wrong are wrong thinking and wrong priorities. So here's what I mean. First, wrong thinking. Again and again, Jesus says, verse 26, look at the birds of the air. Verse 28, consider the lilies of the field. The word that's used there is a word that means ponder or think. And Jesus says, if you're anxious, you're not thinking rightly. He says, do not be anxious, but consider this. Consider that. Before I move on, I want you to see how important this is. What do you think faith is? Faith isn't the absence of thinking. Faith uh, doesn't say, well, that doesn't make any sense, but it doesn't matter. That's where faith comes in. That's not how Jesus talks. Jesus says faith begins with thinking. He says it's anxiety that's the absence of thinking. You see, when you're sitting and listening to yourself, There's some degree to screw up metaphors. You're listening to your heart run off at the mouth and that's what makes you scared. When your heart starts to ramble, and and this happens to me, it starts to react to situations and it kind of runs at the mouth just like you do when you don't think before you speak. So you're lying in bed and your heart's saying, this is gonna be really bad. What am I gonna do about this? And we're listening to our heart instead of talking to our heart. And listening to our heart is what Jesus says brings anxiety. Instead, you stop and think in order to talk to your heart. So you can say, now Dave, wait a minute, look at the facts, consider this, consider that, you think and then you talk. Faith is not just trying to pass peaceful thoughts through your mind, neither is faith turning your mind off. Faith is a position of confidence towards the world based on what God has said in his word. if you don't believe God has spoken in his word, then I have no good way for you to deal with anxiety. But if you do understand that he spoke and then you take his words and you use them to talk to yourself, Jesus here gives you two arguments and they're great arguments. They're not just examples. And the first argument is go to the word and see that God is in charge. The first argument is verse 26, the look at the birds of the air argument. The second argument is verse 28, consider the lilies of the field argument. And I want you to learn how to use these two arguments. The first argument is a providence of God argument, the birds of the air. The second argument, the lilies of the field is a love of God argument. The first argument is consider the birds. God's in charge of them. God gives them what they need. You don't have the power to add even one minute to your life. And what Jesus is saying is God has all the power. God's in charge. God's sovereign. God is a God of providence. Do you know how to apply that to your heart? To the average American, providence is the capital of Rhode Island. But the word providence comes from provide ends. The doctrine of the providence of God is that everything that happens is part of God's will. That everything you have is part of God's provision. In Ephesians 1.11, the apostle Paul says, "'In him we have obtained an inheritance, "'having been predestined according to the purpose of him, "'who works all things according to the counsel of his will.'" And then in Romans 8.28, a familiar verse that we regularly misquote, says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Jesus is saying there's no way to deal with anxiety unless you believe that. Now somebody could say, wait, that doesn't actually make me feel any better. I just feel like a puppet. Everything's predetermined. It doesn't matter what I do. And if you jump to that conclusion, you've moved away from the biblical doctrine of providence to the pagan notion of fate. And they are not the same thing. Let me give you two examples of this. First, we'll look at Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Here the Apostle Peter is talking to the people of Jerusalem. And he says, Christ was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Do you hear that? When Jesus Christ died, wasn't that death foreordained? Wasn't it planned? It says it was. It says he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And yet, even though you were destined to kill him, even though it was purpose that you kill him, it was still wicked that you killed him. And what God is saying here, what Peter is saying, is that you're still responsible for the wickedness of your heart. You're responsible for the choices you make. God doesn't make you wicked but God is still able to work out his perfect plan through your choices. That's why second example is Joseph. Joseph could talk to his brothers who sold him into slavery. He went down into Egypt he was almost put to death eventually becomes a powerful man and later on he's able to save his family from famine and he looks at his brothers and says Genesis 50 verse 20 as for you you meant evil against me but god meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today what does that mean god is telling them god led you to sell me into slavery it was part of his plan it looked terrible it looked awful but it was part of his plan and he intended it for good now does that mean therefore brothers you didn't do anything wrong you couldn't help yourself it was fate No, of course not. Joseph didn't mean that, and his brothers knew he didn't mean that. The brothers wept. The brothers repented. See, they knew they were responsible for their own wicked actions. And yet God infallibly worked out his own counsel, what we saw in Ephesians 1, the counsel of his will, through those same wicked actions. And Jesus says, until you understand that, until you believe that, it's impossible to deal with anxiety. That's why there's a certain sense in which we can say, along with Romans 8, all things work together for good to them that love God. It's saying that when you finally give yourself over to God and say, I trust you, you begin to realize that everything that's happening, everything that's happening, is happening for your good. The minute you're able to say, I'm not going to be the center of the universe anymore, I'm not going to demand an explanation for everything going on anymore, I'm not going to try to control my own life. Then and only then will I be willing to say, Lord, you know what's best. In Philippians, Paul says, Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That means when you ask God for something, thank him ahead of time for whatever he sends. Well, how can you do that? It means you have to have the conviction that God is not going to send you anything that's wrong or anything that's bad, even if it seems wrong or bad or hard or difficult. You know, when I was a little kid, my parents were always ruining my life. They were always saying things like, stop swallowing those rocks. Don't stick that fork into the electrical outlet. You know, those people didn't know how to live. You know, I'm trying to have a good time. They're ruining my life. And I wasn't able to understand until I was older. I realized they were saving my life every day, many times a day sometimes. Sometimes people will say, well, if I really trust God like that, he may tell me things I don't want to do. He may command me to do things I don't want to obey. And the answer is, of course, he'll tell you things you don't want to do. What's the use of having a king if you're wise enough and smart enough to do it yourself? But you have a king and the king is there because you're not wise enough and smart enough to know how to control your own life. Abraham didn't want to give up Isaac. Moses didn't want to go to Pharaoh. Jesus didn't want to go to the cross, but his will is wise and right and good and the people who submit to it will spend the next billion years thanking him for that wisdom and thanking him for that righteousness and thanking him for that goodness and that he gave wise counsel and good commands to them that's the providence of god the birds of the air argument the other argument is the lilies of the field argument the lilies of the field argument's different the birds of the air is providence of god He's in control. What can I do but trust him? But this argument is the love of God argument. Jesus has considered the lilies of the field, how they're clothed, and how God takes care of them. And then he says, verse 31, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Your father knows what you need. That's where you start to argue God's love into your heart. It goes like this, listen heart, listen self, listen Dave, you can put your own name in there. You know that he loves you more than you can imagine. You know that he knows all the hairs on your head and how many tears have come down your cheeks. You know that. You know that if he didn't spare his own son, how is he gonna fail to give us anything that we need And so you argue with yourself, you talk to yourself, and you begin to realize anxiety is essentially a daily Twitter message to God saying, I don't think you have my best interests in mind. That's what anxiety is. It's a little crass, but it's like that. Anxiety is saying, Father, I know you emptied heaven of your greatest treasure and sacrificed your only son for me, but I'm not sure you know how to arrange my week. When you realize what you're saying, And the problem is, we often don't realize it when we're doing that. But when you do, you realize how much you're offending his steadfast love and his amazing grace. There's no way you would put up with anybody like that, a friend or a family member who continually trampled on your love the way you and I trample on God's love. And so you argue with your heart, you talk to your heart, he's my father, he loves me, he knows who I am, he knows what I need. the first thing, right thinking, providence of God argument, love of God argument. Second thing is we have wrong priorities and we need right priorities. And Jesus gives us the right priorities in our theme verse for today. Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Again, we have to ask, what does that mean? And Jesus We have so many illustrations of this through the Bible. One of them is the great story of Mary and Martha. You remember Jesus came to their house and Martha's running around. Literally it says she was anxious doing many things. It uses the same word for anxious that Jesus uses in Matthew 6. Mary sat at Jesus' feet and Jesus comes to Martha and says, Luke 10, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken from her. He's saying, Martha, sit down and focus on me. Anxiety is the result of having the wrong priorities. If Jesus is the main thing in your life, then your anxiety should be lessening. If your profession, your relationships, your material comfort, money, anything else that you can think of, Is the main thing, even if you don't want to admit it. If anything else is more important than Jesus, then you're battling anxiety. You just are. And often, and again, I'm I'm caveating this a lot because anxiety is a huge subject with lots of different ways and means about it, but it often comes from not having things in the proper place. And right here, Jesus is bluntly asking to put him first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Yes, that means your prayer life. It means your fellowship with other Christians. It means your mission, your ministry, your growth and grace. When Jesus comes first, your other concerns will begin to fade because you'll be able to think more about him and trusting him. Right thinking, right priorities. Wrong thinking, wrong priorities. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. There are lots of different kinds of people in the world. There are different kinds of people here today. Some of you have certainly believed in Christ and have received him as Savior. However, it's one thing to put your faith in him and enter the kingdom, and it's another thing to walk by faith day by day. It's one thing to believe in God. Lots of you believe in God but it's much harder to believe God. And Jesus is saying, trust me, not just believe in me, trust me. Listen to what I say. Obey me. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, some of you may be here thinking, you know, I've never really put my faith in Christ the way you're saying. I've never received him as Savior. I've never made him the main thing in my life. Some of you may be saying, I'd like to do that, but I've never been able to. I wish I could believe, but I haven't been able to. Listen, there's only two doctrines on which to base your life. Only two. Either you're competent to run your life, or God is. And part of our problem when we say, I can't believe, is that you think you're competent to run your own life. That is an act of absolute blind faith. And there is no evidence for it, and you know it. It is a leap against the evidence. It means you refuse to doubt yourself and that's why you can't believe. I have a hard time when people say they can't believe in God because it doesn't deal with what's causing that and it's often I refuse to doubt myself even though my life gives me all the evidence I need to do that. And I don't care how successful you are, the most successful people are still making a total mess of some part of their life because they refuse to doubt themselves. Come to Christ. Jesus knew what it was to trust God in the wilderness. The devil came and said, turn those stones into bread, but he didn't do it. Why? He continued to depend on God. He wouldn't take matters into his own hands. He wouldn't decide to disobey God and take control. Because he was faithful, he died in our place as our substitute and took the punishment that we deserve for our desire to exercise power and maintain control. We have to believe him, we have to trust him, God's in charge, God is sovereign, God is the God of providence. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in the barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And we don't just believe him and trust him, We listen to what he says, because God is also a God of love. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? That means today you can go to him. And know if you believe, not just in him, but believe him, he's your substitute, he's your savior, your sins are wiped away, you're putting yourself in the hands of a father who loves you, who knows who you are, and who knows what you need. As the old hymn, how firm a foundation puts it, fear not, I am with thee, oh be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. Early in our service, we read Proverbs 18.10. It reminds us the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and is safe. And those who are safe, those who feel safe, Those who want to be safe will run to the Lord and begin to see their anxieties fade. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have given us a king. Thank you that this king knows us and loves us and cares for us. Open our eyes that we might see our sin in all the ways in which we trust ourselves instead of you. Help us to see how we put ourselves first and how we try to exercise power and keep control. Help us to see how we allow anxiety to push out faith and how we allow anxiety to keep us from trusting you. We indeed are the people of little faith. So please, Lord, grant us greater faith so that we may trust Christ and believe him from this day forward. Grant that we may live like people who love you, that we may trust your providence and receive your love, and work in each of our hearts this summer as we learn to trust you and your word and through the gospel of Matthew, enable us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And help us to know and believe that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen.